And if you'll keep your Bibles out and turn over to the New Testament now, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Our focus this morning is going to be on verses 2 and 3 of Titus 2, but we're going to read again this chapter in its entirety. Uh, For now, Paul, as he is commanding Titus to establish or to put into order uh, churches in every city uh, there in the island of Crete, he has began with the work of the elders, the qualifications of the elders. Last week, he spoke to the ministers, Titus himself, and now this week, he's going to begin to speak to the people in the pew, we might say to the congregation of these churches found in the island of Crete, specifically in verses 2 and 3, the characteristics of good, godly, older men and women. And as I was preparing for the sermon this week, it reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is exhorting the people of God there in Corinth. And he begins to speak of this idea that we are all one body of Christ, And yet we have many different functions, many different facets. And he compares it to uh, the, the body, how it's made. That we have fingers and hands and arms, but we also have toes and feet and legs. We have eyes, we have noses, we have ears. And all of them have a different function to execute. And the Lord has called individuals, Paul says, to to operate in these ways. Now he's not saying that There are some in the church that are going to be the sniffers or the hearers or the seers. But what he's speaking to here is that we have been given a role. We have been given the gifts to execute that role. We have been given the function to go and do those things in which we are called to do. And therefore, we must do them. And we must be content in the way in which God has called us to operate within the body of Christ. The eye cannot say to the nose, I wish I was a nose. Nor can the hand say to the feet, you know, I really wish I was the feet. Or probably the better analogy would be the feet because they, you know, are walking on the ground all the time and nobody likes feet. Uh, The feet say to the hands, you know, I really wish I wasn't a foot, but I wish I was a hand. I I wish I had a more instrumental role. Well, Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12 is that if We lose an eye, we lose our vision. If we lose our fingers, we lose our ability to grasp. If we lose our toes, we lose our ability to walk. Each and every function, each and every part of the body of Christ matters and therefore must work for the good and the advancement of the gospel within their local congregation. And so immediately, as Paul turns his attention to the people in the pews, especially older men and older women that make up a a large portion of the body of Christ here in Crete, he is saying at the outright, there is no retirement from gospel ministry within the local church. You must be working. You ought to be working. You have a function. You have a call. And your call, your function, your part within the visible church is of vital importance. And so, as he turns his attention to the more seasoned of saints, he's saying, you, seasoned believers in the Lord, older people within the church, 
regardless of your gender, regardless of your age, you are what the church needs. You have a vital ministry within the church. And before he even gets to that vital ministry, he begins to speak of characteristics that these older men and women must have as they are godly and faithful and examples for the younger men and younger women within the household of faith. And that shouldn't cause you any angst. That's exactly what he's done with the elders. He gives you a host of qualifications, an exhaustive list of qualifications, so that your life may then be a living example of your duty, elders. You are the ones who are rightly handling the Word of God within the local congregation. And so, to give you a preview of where we're going, Paul will say, eventually, Lord willing, in two weeks, as we pick back up our journey through Titus, it's the older men and the older women within the church who should be discipling the younger men and the younger women in the church. But first, we must understand what characteristics the older men and the older women must have so that they're worthy of imitation. Just as he commends the elders being worthy of imitation to the congregation, now he says that the older saints within the church must be worthy of imitation for the younger saints within the church. And so with all that in mind before us, let's read again Titus chapter 2. Again, looking at all 15 verses, but specifically this morning, focusing in on verses 2 and 3. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that, an opponent may, uh, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. They are not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, as we introduced the letter of Titus a number of weeks ago, two months ago to be exact, we mentioned how the ministry of the local church is for the people of God. 
Yes, there's an aspect of evangelism that the church of God must be about. There's a call for each and every believer to be those who share the gospel of Jesus Christ with their words. Yes, we are supposed to be a light into the dark places, a city on a hill, shining the light of Christ and His salvation to a world full of darkness and sin. But when it comes to the ministries of the local church, the children's ministries, the youth ministries, the the music ministries, the preaching ministries, the, the Sunday school ministries, the women's ministries, and the list could go on and on and on. Those ministries, Paul is establishing in Titus 1, are for the elect. It's for the building up and the sanctification of God's people. So that we might present one another as mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we call that discipleship. In the local church, there is a relationship of discipleship that goes along with the work of the local church ministry. And as we commit ourselves to the local church ministry, which is for the people of God, there is this three-legged stool. And if you were with us last week, you remember this. There's this three-legged stool that Vody Bauckham, a famous modern Baptist preacher, says that is the thread that pulls Titus 2 uh, completely all the way from verse 1 to verse 15. Discipleship in the local church context starts with godly elders and ministers who will, who will proclaim, boldly proclaim the Word of God. And then it pours into the church pews where we have older men and women teaching, discipling younger men and women. And then we have families who carry on the discipleship of the local church into their homes, meaning they're doing family worship within their homes. And, and what Titus 2 is exclaiming is this, this type of ministry, this formation of a church, godly elders and preachers, older men and women, discipling younger men and women, and fathers who then take the gospel and discipleship into their homes. It's this type of church that will go and impact every city within the island of Crete. You remember something about the island of Crete. It's a wild and a sinful island. Rugged individualism prevails in the island of Crete. Drunkenness, sexual immorality false worship of many different gods, many different pagan gods. And, and so it's not necessarily that it's not religious in nature as an island, but they worship many gods and false gods, so they're idolaters. And the way in which Paul tells Titus the church is going to stand against this type of sinful world is to be a well-established, ordered church with stable people in it that are discipling, doing the work of discipleship within her ministries and within her membership. And so what the Apostle Paul does is he's writing this letter to Titus about these local church ministries that he is establishing within these cities in the island of Crete. He begins to break down the people, the congregation, into these age categories and gender categories. 
And he gives instruction on how each of these different groups of people are to demonstrate the grace of God within their lives. And so he starts in verse 2 with older men. Older men. Now, commentators are uh, kind of all over the place, if we are honest, with, with what exactly an older man is within the church. You know, there are some who want to argue that, that it's not necessarily an age that the Apostle Paul's speaking to here, but it's a, a spiritual journey in which he's talking to here, a, a spiritual maturity. I don't think that's appropriate. I think that Paul is directly speaking to well-seasoned men in this life. He, he's speaking to uh, probably what we would say somewhere between the age of mid-50s, early 60s, and older. That's his target audience here. The best commentators are you somewhere around the age of 60 and older. Now one commentator, I won't say his name, but John Calvin continues to call him graybeards. Not going to use graybeards from the pulpit, but John Calvin speaks of it as a, as a term of endearment, as a term, uh, a term of uh, prestigiousness, that this man has lived life and he is worthy of imitation, executing these characteristics, and he has a story to tell. That's very prominent here within this call of older men to disciple younger men and older women to disciple younger women. They have gone through the, the days, the years of life, and they have a story to tell. And it's not just any story, but they have the gospel story to tell on how the Lord has saved them, how the Lord has sanctified them, how the Lord has brought up within them these characteristics that are before us here in verses 2 and 3. And so as Paul targets these men who are probably in the local church, 60 and older, he's saying, how does this man, how does this older man demonstrate the grace of God in his life? How does this older godly man reflect the grace of God in his life? And there are six characteristics that this older man must have. And the first one there, in verse 2, is he is to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. What's interesting to me here is uh, as the Apostle Paul begins to spell out these characteristics, that, that phrase sober-minded and self-controlled in the original Greek are actually the same exact word. And so they carry two different meanings as, as Paul lists out these characteristics, but I actually think they go hand-in-hand hand with one another. He's saying that the temperament... The, the mindset of the older godly man must be clear. As one commentator says, he must be clear-headed. That might make a little bit of a difference in how we understand this. He must be clear-headed. He must not be driven by any outside source, as in something like an abusive nature or abusive spirit with alcohol. But he also must be not, or he cannot be driven by emotion either. He, he doesn't necessarily have to be free from all emotions. That's not what Paul's saying. But 
Emotions cannot drive his actions. And so what Paul might be saying here is that he can't be a a drunk. He has to be sober-minded, but he also must be self-controlled. He must not be something like panicky or have fits of anger or fits of rage. He must be clear-minded, stable in his ways. I actually think that it's best to say to grab both sets of what or both aspects of what Paul's teaching here in this set of Greek terms that he must be self-controlled, disciplined, self-disciplined in in every area of life. And why would that be for an older man? Well, like we said, the older man has lived his life. And, and, And hopefully what we have here is an older man, as Paul speaks to him here in Titus chapter 2, that has walked well with the Lord has walked faithfully with the Lord, is seasoned not only in life experience, but seasoned also in his spirituality. And he understands as a seasoned Christian that God is absolutely in control of all things. And so he doesn't have to be panicky. He doesn't have to lash out in anger. He doesn't have to self-soothe in drunkenness but he can totally rely upon the good name of his Lord. And therefore, his life is orderly, stable, self-controlled. He is a disciplined man. And you know, there's a, a story that I, that I love by Dwight L., Dwight L. Moody that speaks of knowing doctrine and it influencing his life, particularly... Uh, specifically, he tells this story about the Shorter Catechism, one of the, the foundational documents of our church, uh, part of our constitution of our church. And, and I've told this story before, but it, it really resounds well with, with what's taking place here in Paul's characteristics of a godly man, a godly older man. Because there's this story that Dwight L. Moody says, or teaches, or states, and he says that this general officer of the United States Army was in one of the great cities and this great city was overrun by rioters, this dangerous crowd. Political chaos was on the rise within our nation and and yet as Dwight L. Moody walks down the road, he sees this U.S. Army officer completely calm, completely at peace, a, a look of reverence, of dignity upon his face his hair nicely combed, his suit nicely pressed. This man, he said, had it all together. And as they passed by one another and nodded to one another, something within both of their spirits said, turn around and look at one another. Look at that man who has it all together. And they looked back at one another and they found themselves standing almost face to face. And so Dwight L. Moody looked at this man who who caught his attention because of his calmness, because of his discipline, because of his self-control, this orderly, stable man that he saw. He goes, what is the chief end of man? And the man rattled off, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. He said, I knew you were a shorter catechism man. I knew you knew the Lord. I knew you knew your doctrine. I knew that you... That the way you could be so temperate, the way that you could be so self-controlled, orderly, stable, 
was because you have experienced the grace of God in your life. And that sets the precedent for the rest of the characteristics in which Paul tells Titus must be in the godly older man within the local church. Because the next one that he says here is dignified. That he must be sober-minded. And then in verse 2, dignified. Older men need to be dignified. This means that they must be reverent and respectable. That they need to be honorable men. We might say that they are worthy of imitation. Not only is their mind completely ordered and stable, but their, the way that they conduct themselves in the world is orderly and, and stable. What our officer qualifications in our book of church order says is, is that they must be grave. But that doesn't mean grumpy or gloomy or, or close to death. That means that they have it together, we might say. That we can look upon them in the way that they are reverent, the way that they are dignified. You know that you are looking straight into the face of someone who knows the Lord and knows the grace of God. You think about Dwight L. Moody and this other man that he sees in the midst of a chaotic world. It was the way in which they walked. It was the way in which they looked that first showed them that this man has it together. And that's what a godly older man looks like. He looks like he has it together. You know, one of my favorite commentators, uh, or theologians rather, is, is Louis Burkhoff. And Louis Burkhoff was, was well known for slipping in and out of these used kind of alleyway bookstores. And, and, and they always knew that it was Louis Burkhoff because he always had his look about him dignified. He, he never looked like a slouch. He never looked like a bum. He, he looked like he had it all together. And, and, and I read a book a number of years ago that, that I think I read it during COVID actually. It was called Make Your Bed. And it, it spoke of the little things in life showing you and others that you have a, a grip upon life. And that's nothing that we boast in. These little things that, that, show, that show our dignity, that show we are dignified. It's nothing that we boast in that I dress well or, or I have it all together. You know, I have a, a good grasp of reality. It's nothing that we boast in as older men, but it's, it's something that we say, only by the grace of God have I been given the capacity. I've been given the capacity to say, I can walk, I can live, I can lay my head down to sleep, I can wake up in the morning knowing that my God holds it all together. And it's something that older men ought to be dignified. There, used, there ought to be a, a distinguishing factor, this dignity that shows itself prominent within his life. And something else that should be seen within their life is that they are self-controlled, sober-minded, sensible, we might say. Sensible not only in... In worldly matters, but also in the faith. 
And so as we combine these two things, we, we see this self-controlled sound in faith. They must know what they believe, why they believe it, and their life must be influenced by their faith in which they now live out. The older godly man cannot be one who is a Pharisee in the faith. An older man cannot be one who is nominal in his religion, but he must believe and show a strong and a stable faith. They must have a story, we might say, of not just only street smarts, but faith smarts. Not only the lessons that they've learned in the business world or in the home as fathers and husbands, but they must know what it's like to be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. He must be a man who can say, here is what conviction is. Here is what conviction feels like. Here is what conviction does. Here is how you mortify and kill sin. Here is how you pursue Christ's likeness. Here is how you have a sound faith. A well-ordered faith. A stable and sensible faith. There should be a grateful trust in the Lord as, as older men near the, what we might call the twilight years of life. They are, in a, they are in a special season of life where they are in the position to testify on what God has done in their lives and how God's Word is true, how it's proved to be true in their lives. And they should be quick to declare these things to the younger men within the church. You know, one of my favorite things to hear from the older men within the church as a younger man within the church is how God has sustained men as they've executed the role of father. Because quite frankly, what younger men are struggling with, or at least me as a younger man struggles with, is how am I going to keep my senses for 24 years of that attitude. I mean, we all know what we're talking about, right? You, 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 how, how am I going to be responsible for this human being? And how am I going to keep my senses if she is this sassy at four? How in the world am I going to get through the teen years? How in the world am I going to trust her as she goes off to college? How in the world am I going to prepare a man to marry her? And I think we all know who I'm talking about at this point. <laughs> These things ring in my head all the time. And it's so, it's so encouraging for fathers, older men who, who have now grandchildren to look and say, I didn't know how I was going to make it either, but every day I woke up because the grace of God sustained me and I didn't kill her. <clears throat> That there is something to be said about that. And there's something uniquely intimate about the church when older men are, are demonstrating God's grace in their life by being sound in their faith. And what, and what Paul says next is also sound in their love. Not only do they demonstrate that they love God, but they demonstrate how they love one another. They have this biblical, spiritual love about them. A love that, that shows the younger man what it means to be a man of the faith. A godly husband, a godly father, a godly churchman, a, a, a deacon who is faithfully serving, an elder who is 
faithfully leaving, leading. You know, it's, it's godly older men who can show their love for God and love for neighbor in a very practical way like attending Lord's Day worship. Older men set the example that this is what men do. They take their, they take their wives and their children to church and they sing hymns of the faith. They participate in the liturgy. They confess the confessions together. They recite the creeds. They diligently diligently listen to sermons and scripture readings and and they model what it's like to just sit in a church pew and then they model what the ministry of the word does outside of the local church and in the community you know one of the one of the things that that I struggled with as a young man I know I'm young but one of the things that I struggled with even when I was a younger man it is the singing within the local church setting. Actually, I didn't, catch, uh, I didn't catch what men in the church singing could do until I t- attended my first Twin Lakes conference in Jackson, Mississippi. Because there's a hundred men in one room, and they sing at the top of their lungs, and it sounds as if the windows are going to bust and the roof is going to blow off of the little sanctuary in which we meet. And it was then, and only then, that I saw older men singing praises to their God at the top of their lungs that I said, you know what, it's fitting for men to sing. Men don't like the, men don't like the attention, right? And so we, we sit there and we sing and we mumble and, you know, we might, we might not even hold a hymn book. We might just stand there in utter silence. And yet, you're singing, older men, can encourage and will encourage younger men to grab a hymn book, to sing praises to their Lord because He is worthy of our adoration and our thanksgiving. Model that. Model that. Model your faith. The next one here is perseverance. Perseverance. As we look at the last trait of the older man here, he is showing his faith in the doctrine in he, that which he believes, the doctrine in which he proclaims, the doctrine in, way, in the ways that he lives. But he's also showing steadfastness, or your translation of God's Word might say perseverance. The, the godly man is the one who perseveres and patiently waits and endures all things. You know, one of the things that is so hard for us in this ever-changing world is to trust in a never-changing God. We want our God to, to bend and to move according to the pressures of the culture. Because it's easier, if our Lord would do that, it's easier to stand for the Gospel. It's easier to face sufferings if our Lord would just bend to the pressures that the culture puts out in front of us. If we're honest with ourselves, we would say that. And yet a godly man, an older man, is one who not only professes and declares and believes and lives out sound doctrine of the faith, but he is one who perseveres even when that doctrine stands against the cultural winds that attempt to to blow us to and fro. 
And so the older men must show an example to the younger men. They must demonstrate the grace of God in their own lives by solid and sound perseverance. They are to be steady. They are to be steady in the face of opposition. They are to be steady in the providences of our Lord. Each and every day that the Lord tarries to come back for His people, the godly older man simply models how to wait. How to wait. And that's something that we, that we younger men need to, to observe. Because the seasoned life in which the older men have lived when it comes to facing persecution and suffering for your faith, is going to pale in comparison to what men like my son Brooks is going to experience 20, 30 years down the road. The world is going to get more and more wicked as they turn their backs further and further from the Lord. And it's going to take older generations to prove that not only is it worth it, to stand against the culture, to stand founded upon the Word of God and the solid doctrine that's proclaimed there. Not only will they model that it's worth it, but that it's doable. That it's doable. That we can patiently endure awaiting the crown of righteousness that awaits us in heaven. And as we wind this down, because I know that it's noon, one of the things that one modern commentator was was writing about this week as I was reading that this unbelievable statistic that had to do with older men, the the highest rate of suicide within men is 64 to 85. 64 to 85. And this commentator was arguing this is exactly the age group in which Paul is targeting And he says that the healthy church, when it comes to the people in the pew, has to be led by that age group. You know why the suicide rate's so high within that age group? Because they get depressed, and they think life is over, and they have nothing to offer. Their body's not what they used to be. Their children are gone and moved away and not in the home. They they have no quote-unquote purpose, they think. Well, Paul is saying in Titus chapter 2 that godly older men, your purpose in the local church is to demonstrate God's grace by your life, by your perseverance, by your prayers, by your attendance to church, by your giving, by your worship. You, older man, have a great responsibility in the church, a great purpose in the church to to stay the course, to keep running your race in the faith so that you might demonstrate to the younger men within the local church that it's worth it, that it's doable. And even as you reach the twilight of your life where the crown of righteousness is clearly before you, that this is what God has designed to glorify Himself. And may God glorify Himself in and through the older men discipling the younger men at First Presbyterian Church so that we might see real fruit, real encouragement, real assurance, real perseverance until we reach glory. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. And Lord, we do pray that this would be the, the characteristics of our older men. That they would know that they have a great purpose here within our church. That they, by the doctrine in which they believe, by the faith in which they proclaim, by, by the actions of biblical scriptural love in which they execute. They are living demonstrations of God's grace, especially to the younger men that attend here. And so, Father, would you continue to encourage them, these older men, to labor well for your kingdom, to persevere unto the end. May they never retire from ministry within the local church. May they always say that they have a great purpose, a great calling, a great function here within this congregation. And so, Lord, use this word this morning to convict where it ought to convict, encourage where it ought to encourage. Use it, Lord, to build your church. We ask these things. Amen and amen.